Welcome to Shamanic Plants and the Fate of the Earth, a conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpenyi at a Bioneers conference with Eric Davis, Jody Evans, and Kat Harrison. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins. Well, I'm honored that you would choose to be here with so many amazing choices at the Bioneers conference. I'm also deeply honored with the extraordinary people who are stage left, I guess. Um, so before we begin, let me do two things. First, I want to explain the mechanics of the next 90 minutes. What we're going to do is I'm going to give um, an intro just to frame the context of the discussion and introduce the panelists. Um, and then each one of our panelists will have approximately 15 minutes to give a discourse of their choosing uh, on the topic. And then after that, we're going to save about 15 or 20 minutes for a discussion amongst the panelists. And then finally, we'll try to save 15 or 20 minutes for Q&A. Now in the Q&A, please think haiku, not Tolstoy, okay? Try to short questions to the point, you know, think cogent, um, cogent statements and, and questions so as many people as possible can get to participate. Let me explain a little bit the context of the genesis of this uh, panel we always do, or almost always do, a panel on this topic at Bioneers because even though we sometimes get flack for it because there are people who ask what do psychedelics have to do with the environment, um, we feel that actually it's an important part of it and I'll get back to that in a minute. And what I thought we would focus on today is the interface of the visionary psychedelic experience. I, I'll use the term psychedelic, some people use entheogenic or um, will be old-fashioned and use uh, Humphrey Osmond's terminology, um, with environmental consciousness. Because after all, Bioneers is predominantly about restoring the earth. And um, one thing that I think has been overlooked by cultural observers and, um, and critics and writers in the mainstream is how important the psychedelic experience was to our culture. And there, is, there have been a few recent books. There's a recent book called How Cyberculture from counterculture to cyberculture, all about the birth of the personal computer and how awash in LSD that birth was. Um, but it's not, the impact that psychedelics had on our um, musical culture, artistic culture, uh, political culture has really, that story hasn't been told. It's a real taboo. And I'm not someone who's advocating the mass consumption of these very potent substances. I think they have to be treated with a lot of respect and they're not for everyone. They're probably not even for most people, in my humble opinion. That said, they play, they're tremendously important both in human culture historically and in our culture. And in our culture, one thing that's not spoken about, because most environmentalists have to go to Washington and lobby and talk about you know, parts per million and so on and so forth. They don't want to talk about their youth leaping naked into waterfalls. Um, so the impact that the psychedelic experience had on many of us when we were young in terms of our bonding with the natural world and of having profound experiences in nature and of rekindling the human nature connection is very strong. I'm not saying every environmentalist or even most had that experience, but many of us did, and many of us here did, and many of us who've been involved in putting this together for many years did, and it would be intellectually dishonest on our part not to include this topic. So that's why we do it. Let's move. Let me move on to introducing our panelists. Uh, and it really is uh, a great thrill for me to be able to sit at the same table with these people. I will introduce all of them and then um, they'll, I'll do it in the order that they're going to speak in. Immediately here to my left is Jody Evans. Now Jody Evans is 
one of the most amazing activists in the history of the US. Um, for, sometimes you might see your picture on the front page of the New York Times being dragged in handcuffs from the Republican National Convention, um, the next week being arrested somewhere else, but she does far more than getting arrested. She's really been uh, around for a long, long time, um, which you could never tell by her youthful demeanor. Um, but Jody was in the Jerry Brown administration when he was governor, and she um, ran his Office of Appropriate Technology. She has founded many, many different groups. She sits on the boards of many organizations, including Rainforest Action Network, um, the Garden Project at San Bruno Prison, the Conscious Business Alliance. I mean, there's so many, the Circle of Life Foundation that Julia Butterfly Hill started, so many. Um, and Jody is the most tireless activist that I know. But unlike, and she's of course the founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace, an extraordinary organization that's really um, had a major, major impact on the activist movement. And she's someone who, unlike many activists, and I've been around activists for a long time, who, you know, you love what they do, but you don't really want to have dinner with them. Um, they tend to be a little dour. Jody is perhaps the most open-hearted person that, I, that I've ever met and one of the most extraordinary forces of nature. And she has also been very helpful here um, in booking some of these panels. She helped us get Ethan Nadelman, who's perhaps one of the great um, people working on harm reduction for drugs, perhaps in the world, and on the drug policy. She sits on the board of the Drug Policy Alliance. But I did not know that Jody had a more personal interest in these matters, and I'm going to be very eager to hear about her personal connection to this material, and that's what we're hoping uh, she'll talk about today. So she's going to lead off. Afterwards, you will hear from, uh, that's not Lenin or Trotsky, that is my good friend Eric Davis. Uh, Eric Davis is, uh, I think, perhaps the most astute uh, observer of contemporary cultures, especially of spiritual subcultures. He's written a few extraordinary books. Uh, one is called Technosis, um, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Information Age. And it's really, it's a classic, an underground classic among the cognoscenti, but it's a really brilliant book. And most recently, he has a book out which is a, a done with a photographer, which is an extraordinary book called The Visionary State. There it is, okay, a prop. Uh, has amazing photographs, amazing texts. It's a lot about the spiritual history of California and all the different subcultures and the impact that California has had on the larger culture. It's a great read. It's, it's far more than a coffee table book. It's a, uh, a must-have, so I, I urge you to, to check it out. Eric is also someone who I met because he's one of the great experts on the sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick, who I was also obsessed with at a certain point in my life and still fascinated by. And, um, has spoken around the world at a, in a variety of formats. He's deeply knowledgeable about avant-garde film, art. This guy's a real, a real head, a real genius. Uh, so I'm, I'm honored to have him as a friend. Finally, last but not least, Kat Harrison. Now, Kat Harrison has spoken at Bioneers more than any other human being. I mean, I can't be absolutely sure of that. We don't keep statistics the way baseball announcers do, but I'm pretty sure that I could bet my farm on that. Of course, I don't have a farm, but nonetheless. Uh, and um, Kat is someone who's very hard to describe, but she's, I guess, an ethnobotanist, an artist, um, a researcher. I guess the, the best terminology is someone who researches the relationship between plants and people with a particular focus on myth, ritual, and spirituality. And she's done a tremendous amount of field work in many parts of the world, but especially 
um, in, the, in the Amazon and among the Mazatec in Mexico and in Central America. And she's someone who, I, when, I can't think of someone who is more a plant person than Kat. The same way Paul Stamets is an ambassador of the fungal realm, Kat is an ambassador of the world of plants. Um, and her perspective is unique. It's both fierce and loving, and um, it's a really, yeah, I never know what she's gonna say, and it's always fascinating, so uh, it's great to have her here. Now, Kat is going to be appearing in a book, in this book, the Visionary Plant Conscious book, she appears more than anyone else because she helped organize many of these panels over the years. She was sort of our subcontractor in the shamanic plant panel realm. So, um, but now we're just gonna let her speak and, uh, and so that's it, that's our lineup. So I think we're gonna start with Jody, then Eric, then Kat, and then we'll open it up to the smaller discussion and the larger one. So let's, let's rock on. Thank you very much. Jody. Thank you, JP. As JP was talking, everything he would say, I would say, oh, I got that from the plants. Oh, I got that from the plants. Oh, that fearlessness came from my experiences with the plant medicine. Um, my you know, ability to have gone through death after death, through horror after horror, made standing in front of you know, disrupting Bush at the Republican National Convention seem like mere child's play. Um, I was, like JP said, very active, a, a very, an activist in the 60s, anti-war activist, um, you know, ran in the Office of Appropriate Technology with, at the birth, of really, the birth of environmentalism and developed wind technology and um, solar technology funds were out of there. And so it, being an environmentalist and being an activist weren't strangers to me. But in the early 80s, I was down in Mexico and a tsunami took my daughter away. And she was two. And my life turned upside down. And I couldn't read and I couldn't think. And I was in the deepest, most horrible grief for, for years. And um, it was really, First, I want to say that one of my teachers is here, which is really great. Diane Haug was one of the first people that I met in that process. And she was working with Stan's breathwork, which is kind of a precursor to being able to, to what the plant medicine can do. The first three days um, when I lost my daughter, I went into an altered state of consciousness where I experienced calm, compassion, uh, the capacity to be totally present, connected, and yet not attached. I knew things I didn't know, and I literally could almost read people's mind, and I was taking care of people instead of them taking care of me. And when I finally found my way to working with the plant medicines, they took me to that same place. Um, and later I learned that DMT um, is the root of the plant medicine that I use, which is ayahuasca, and that that's a naturally occurring substance in your own brain. So that it, it connected to me, it connected me to healing. It connected me to the place where somewhere inherent in me, somewhere 
was the process of healing, was wisdom, was, you know, for lack of a better word, consciousness. Um, but who I was walking normally was a long way from there. The, the place of after Lala's death, um, from that kind of heightened state of awareness and consciousness to just literal devastation for years. And then literally finding my way back there. And um, it has been my relationship with ayahuasca that um, I've had since, um, you know, for like 18 years. Um, that has been the process of so many parts of me that seem um, unrelated, uh, kind of like I'm wandering around in the dark, but inside they, they feel totally in the right direction. Um, it's that always when I finish a journey, um, one of the things that, that JP also said was that my experiences in the 60s um, didn't have the wisdom of set and setting that we've learned from so many of our teachers, uh, Ralph Metzner being one, um, who created a conference in San Francisco many years ago, a conference on ayahuasca. Talk about courage. To, and, and even the courage of the 900 people who showed up. Because here you are alone having your experiences with this plant medicine. You have no idea what your community looks like because it's usually done in small circles. It's mostly done in other countries. And who, who could the people be that are your community? And so to have a conference on something that's at the time was illegal in the United States and to come together and talk about the power of our relationship with this plant medicine was just start staggering. I remember signing up to go, thinking, oh my God, like the DEA agents that are gonna be in the room, and who, you know, who am I going to meet? And after four days, I felt like I had met my family, that everyone in the room held something that I recognized from my experiences. Such a calm, such an open-heartedness, so much presence and curiosity and intelligence and willingness to and humility, willingness to know nothing and discover, to continue to go over and over again and share. And the place that um, I've learned from the plant medicines of giving and receiving, of really just this flow that happens constantly, that culture, um, trying to find safety in our world, tend to disrupt. And so as I would take my questions into my relationship with ayahuasca, what I found is every time I would get an answer to the question, it would be the opposite direction that I would have, the I sitting here would have gone. And it would take a leap on my part to shift direction. So, you know, if the question is, how do I save the planet? I look out and it's suffering and Code Pink really started as um, out of a pioneers group of women called Unreasonable Women for the Earth. So, we're, we're saving the earth. So what out of a journey does that become? That becomes ending war. That becomes empowering women. Um, you know, I'm on the board of Drug Policy Alliance because I want everyone to have the choice, whether it's safe, you know, whether it's right for everyone or not, 
but that we should be able to have the choice to have this relationship with these plant medicines, that that's cognitive liberty, and that to get there, I have to work to open up the conversation, to end the drug war, and to look at the fact that I live in a country that's you know 5% of the population and has 25% of its population in prison, that that's about the earth, that how do I save the earth while I'm imprisoning the people, or that to save the earth is really to get myself and everyone I love and everyone I see to save themselves, to heal themselves, to love themselves, and to appreciate their own life. And that that, I feel, is almost, that's the wisdom of the plant, being smart enough to know the, how self-centered we are, that that's the direction to their own saving, that it's, it's our own healing. Um, I want to say, too, that it, it's been interesting to um, take my children into this process, um, to come up against taboo after taboo. Like I said, it's like I'm always going in the opposite direction of where culture, where right and wrong. Um, one of the many things I think I've learned through this process is that it's about wisdom and the lack of judgment. It's about deep experience. So that's one of the things you're offered in the, in the presence of, with the plant medicine. It'll take you places you'll never get to go. <laughs> and um, you, you're absolutely out of control. And in that process, you can get free of judgments you have, rights and wrongs you have, the kind of being in the black and white, and have the freedom to really learn from those experiences, bring it back, and continue letting those experiences teach you as you bring them into your daily life. Um, you know, it's like I finish a journey and I end up working um, on a garden project in a prison in San Francisco because that became the answer to the question. Um, like I said, with Code Pink or ending up on the board of Bioneers, that it continues to take me in directions that I otherwise had not been moving. Um, I had an experience, I was with a friend who's also a, a Bioneers presenter of, of long, he's actually the person who brought me to my first Bioneers many years ago. And um, Tom Hayden, we went down to South America and he had his one and only ayahuasca experience. And out of that came a furious months and months of reading everything he could to um, The Lost Religion of the Earth. And, and a book that really was able, again, to see it all as, as valuable, but kind of bring up in the book what of these religions is valuable? How did they get disconnected from the earth? And how do we go back there? So I've seen it with scientists that I work with. Um, I've seen them be able to go in and find answers to questions they've been working on for a very long time. That in the freedom um, of the space of what I call compassion, of being held in the arms of the mother, that what's hidden can be revealed. And um, so it's a sacrament that I try to take at least once a year. Everybody says, is it, can it be addictive? And I'm like, you just take, it takes me a year to get up the courage to go in again. <laughs> 
I don't know how, <laughs> who would be addicted to that. <laughs> Another thing that I've seen it be for me is the place where it's continually encouraged me to get out of the way and let whatever is, whatever is to come through. And that freedom, I mean, as I slowly worked with it, it was just like kind of thinking, well, that's really what consciousness is. It's, it's being able to be, be. But we have so much in the way so that in that process, it's been able to um, free me from the things I thought I was and allow whatever needed to come through to come through. And that process obviously continues. But it's a wonder, it becomes a wonder to watch it because I feel like I'm witnessing my life um, with, with every breath instead of creating, thinking I'm having anything to do with creating it. So really, um, in the moments of just the deepest awe and the deepest appreciation in the midst of the presence of the plant medicine, of finding that place of just surrender um, of myself, to this deeper wisdom that is so powerful. I can't, uh, there's just never been an experience for me quite, quite like it. And I think uh, with my work with Code Pink, one of the things we really see that holds us in this bind that we're in right now, um, where we're really getting to watch horror. 655,000 Iraqis dead, you know, over 70 soldiers dead in this month, um, our own um, uh, attachment to security, our, our own need for security, all the ways that we're willing to compromise to be safe. So I think the biggest gift that it's been is that freedom for me to never need to be safe, that, that, that I'm not looking for security. Um, I think that makes my work in Code Pink stronger. It makes that the capacity for us to always be looking at what we are as anti-war activists. Is, and are we caught in the hamster wheel drama linked to Bush, or can we break out of it and continually be bringing in a new story, which right now has become um, these little the shoes we have of, that represent the dead Iraqi children, so that. What happened for me is the plant medicine took me to my death so that I could find my life. And again, it was being able to use those shoe images for us as Code Pink as to remind everyone of death so that we could again find the value and the um, respect um, for life. And so in the end, for me, I think the greatest thing that I have got from the plant medicines is that all of it, all the teachings and everything, really all they're saying is to be alive. And it's all about life. Because that's what they are. They are life. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I will be taking a little bit less personal uh, take on this stuff because I'm kind of a cultural observer guy or, or a, a participant observer as, as the anthropologists like to say. Um, and I wanted to start out by just remarking, uh, you know, as someone who's 
looked and spent a lot of time thinking about the history of the encounter of the Western world with um, psychedelic substances, both uh, from nature and from the lab, uh, that, that really something remarkable has happened over the last uh, 10, 15 years, which is the way that ayahuasca in particular has been able to enter into an, a, a relationship and engagement with our modern culture and sustain a very high degree of ritual and sacred intention around the ingestion of the substance over a long period of time in a culture that is very good at profaning and dragging any hint of the sacred through the slime of commerce and, and uh, restless distraction. Uh, and it, I think that's partly uh, says something about the plant. It says something very much about the cultures, the you know, more or less traditional cultures that are trying to sustain the plant. Uh, but it also says something about the way that psychedelic culture, in a broad sense, was prepared I think for a kind of increasing intimacy with the deeper earth wisdom that is contained by, uh, that is contained in potential in these, in these experiences. Um, because of course it's really important to recognize, and, and I believe that, that even if you are, are trying to uh, plug into the deepest, most traditional way of experiencing and ingesting and uh, and coming to terms with your experiences with a substance like ayahuasca, it's also vitally important to remember that you and the shaman and everybody in the room is part of modernity. That the, uh, the, the systems, the traditional systems, the traditional cultures that are bringing you these things are themselves already engaged in a very complex relationship with uh, with modernity, and in fact, many of the, the ayahuasca churches that people first became aware of in the West and first started to uh, investigate are, of course, not based in the deep jungle, but are themselves already quasi-urban phenomenon, mestizo phenomenon, mixtures. And in many ways, that's what defines us in the West, is a mixture. So I think the ability for ayahuasca to speak more directly and more strongly to more people over such a long period of time uh, also has to do with the fact that psychedelic culture was kind of ready for it, set up for it. So what I would like to suggest is that in the, in the course of the modern West's experience of psychedelics, again, both synthetic and, uh, and natural, that you can look at it in a, w in a way as a kind of prologue, a kind of opening of the doors towards a kind of earth wisdom that would be very difficult to translate or experience from the get-go. So I want to explain a little bit what I mean by that. So partly I'm seeing things still through this story that I told about California in, uh, in the visionary state. So, uh, but because California played such an incredibly important role in modern psychedelic culture, I, I feel justified. I mean, it really is sort of the first psychedelic culture where the, uh, the experiences of these, of these in, in the modern world, uh, where the experiences associated with these compounds sort of drifted out of elite circles and went and actually began to trans transform culture on the ground. But another thing that's really key to look at from this, uh, this California perspective, uh, to take it back even further in terms of its relationship to nature, which is really what we're talking about here, the relationship between visionary experiences and nature, is that it possessed in the 19th century 
probably the most uh, influential and important uh, channeler of the uh, Dionysic religion of nature, who is John Muir. And John Muir was able to articulate in a way that was at once scientific, in the sense that he was an extraordinary natural historian, and also a tremendously spiritual man of a very uh, transcendentalist mindset. And his articulation and channeling of the experience of the Sierras really set in motion modern environmentalism. And it also planted a seed in California and across the world of a certain uh, availability of sacred experience in the context of the wild. And what I would like to sort of suggest is that when people decades later, really you're talking about the, the middle of the, of the century, the 1950s, and then of course in the 1960s, when people started to uh, more and more experiment with uh, psychedelic compounds, uh, both peyote, in the 50s you would find peyote uh, and LSD, uh, were, were really kind of the predominant ones that, that people were coming across, and then later uh, psilocybin and a whole variety, a whole cornucopia in the 1960s and, and later, uh, that one of the things that happened is that, of course, people would find themselves confronting this sort of big thing, the big mind, the big all. And this experience sort of booted up, if you will, an already existing current inside Western culture that was transcendentalist, and that, was, that recognized nature as a sacred and pure expression of this kind of big mind or big world or big heart. So that even if you read the experiences of someone like Aldous Huxley, who's no plant person, uh, you hear in the, the sort of big picture that he's drawing, which in many ways is a very kind of intellectual or kind of very co cognitive version, you can hear the resonance of this image of nature, this fundamental strain of nature as associated with a kind of transcendentalist um, mind frame. But at the same time, these experiences that people were having in the 50s and the 60s that, as JP said, definitely you know, led to many people opening up to nature in a very direct way that would later on turn them into, or even at the time, into environmental activists and really shift their whole world view. There's a couple of other things going on there that I want to mention that are, that are aside the fundamental experience of actually being in nature and recognizing your intimacy with it, recognizing the intelligence and the, and the nurturing and the complexity and the aesthetic marvel of nature, which are, of course, these primary experiences that people talk about is this kind of transformative moment. But there's two other things that I think are really key and a, and a little bit less obvious. One of them is the flip side, which is apocalypse, which is that these are apocalyptic substances. And by apocalypse, you, ha you have to remember that the, the root meaning of that word is revelation. It doesn't just mean the end of the world. It means the revealing of, of, of everything underneath the surface. So it has a, as a component of the end of the world when all things become revealed in the, in the Judeo-Christian sense. Um, and they are, as, as revelatory substances, they are also apocalyptic substances. And of course, it's the classic sort of death-rebirth scenario is not ju necessarily just personal death, but sometimes global death or, or society death. And so that one of the things that people are experiencing who may have no sense of nature growing up in an urban environment, uh, discover psychedelics through hedonism and, and having fun and weirdness, uh, will find themselves confronting the destruction of the world that they know. And this gives uh, a sort of sensibility, an apocalyptic sensi sensibility, which can go too far, which can become obsessional and self-destructive uh, and mad. 
but it, give, it, it allows people to recognize in a visceral way a kind of simulation or a kind of uh, you know, video game of what it would look like uh, for the world as we know it, this highly leveraged, industrialized, machine-mad, you know, uh, networked world to begin to fall apart. So that that experience itself, that negative experience, that dark night, also sets people up for a kind of re, uh, a rekindling of a relationship to nature because they, seek, they can see through the, uh, the story of the, the modern material technological world much, much more easily because they can, I know what this looks like when it falls apart. And you know, I can see between the cracks because we're surrounded by cracks everywhere we look where we can see this horror right, behind the, right around the corner and psychedelics can give you a much greater sensitivity for being able to recognize these contradictions uh, and these uh, erosions and these points where things begin to collapse. So that's another important point to which we have to kind of, you know, uh, doff our hats to the, to the compounds, to the substances, to the experience. And another important point which, which uh, uh, ties into this sort of question about how, how would these compounds at once sort of feed the computer industry the industry that transformed the Santa Clara Valley from one of the most remarkable uh, you know, orchards in the world into the poisoned Silicon Valley that we have today. How could that, that communication, that transmission, stand alongside the transmission of these compounds into a deepening environmentalist, ecological, deep, deep ecological sense of the sacredness of nature? And I think the answer lies in the ego-dissolving dimension of these compounds. Because when the conventional uh, sense of yourself as being a little person who's controlling everything and making decisions begins to fall away and you must submit, as Jody talked about, to a deeper process, one of the things that you start to come away with is the sense that yourself, your immediate environment, the world, the mind, nature, matter, are these enormous, complex, flowing, systems, their ecologies, that the self is an ecology, that the, the world is an ecology, that culture is an ecology, within which these sort of singular identifications as I kind of pop up and crystallize like little stones or, or pieces of coral. Uh, and that sense of this larger system, even for people who again had no sense of ecology or environmentalism or in a, in a technical sense or a scientific sense, it gives that opening that possibility that getting myself out of the way and recognizing that there are these larger systems within which I'm functioning. And I'm using the word system, that kind of scientific word, intentionally, because it can sh then it, it makes you see the relationship. So on the one side, you open up this sort of cybernetic knowing that starts to look at not, you know, distributed computer networks and, and non-hierarchical uh, information networks as being really interesting and really kind of potentially really cool. And so you get that connection of this counterculture with early uh, cyberculture, a very important connection that, that continues. But at the same time, you also set up people for systems thinking, which is really another way of saying ecological thinking and environmentalist thinking, so that it becomes much, much easier to say, oh, yes, of course, I'm working in a, in a larger world that's very complex, that has many actors and many agents, but we're all networked in these various ways that w within which my decisions resonate throughout these, this network. 
So it's another way that I think people really uh, were set up, if, if you will, for a deeper engagement with uh, environmentalism and with an, a kind of ecological, uh, ecological framework. So that's why I, I like to, to say that even as we have moved at, at, in psychedelic culture, in some sense, to a greater embrace of plant medicines, and certainly that the more self-consciously spiritual and sacred psychedelic explorations that are happening now are happening more and more with plant medicines. And that's a very significant uh, reflection of the maturity amongst some people or some scenes or some cultures inside uh, the West to sort of take the medicine as deeply as it, as it can go. But that was already set up by a whole set of other uh, experiences that, that came before. And the final point I, I want to, to make is sort of a, a, a slight caution, which is that the experience, the sublime and sacred experience that these compounds and these practices and these rituals uh, can bring us are obviously enormously transformative. I think that one danger they have in relationship to the problem of how you bring that that wisdom and that knowing out into the larger world and particularly into a world of, of uh, in, in terms of environmentalism is the tendency to believe that everybody needs to do this or something like this needs to happen to everybody. And this ties in with the sort of problem that's inside in environmentalism and it's a toughie where a lot of people came here through these, through religious or sacred or spiritual experiences with or without uh, psychedelics and then they're looking at a larger world that if you start using that language at all, suddenly you're a new age wacko. And that's a whole, you know, that you're, you're, everything else you say gets discounted. So there's this, there's this um, conflict that a lot of people face that JP mentioned between having to work with a straight world, with a scientific world, with a technological world that also really has to be turned on and made aware that these things are happening and is in many ways, in many interesting ways, with this sort of more countercultural, more organic, more magical, less rational way of appreciating the deep, uh, you know, spiritual, soulful experiences that are in these things. And it's a, it's a contradiction. And for some people, it's, it, it becomes a little bit schizophrenic. And what I just want to suggest, and I don't have an answer for it, but I would like to just point back to the plants or point back to the substances because psychedelics already contain within them the integration of these modes because even our most spiritual experiences of psychedelics are medi mediated by chemical compounds which we ingest and metabolize as human animals Who's, uh, and that entire process is available to the mind of science. In fact, if science is really going to do what it says it's going to do and take everything seriously, everything that this meat machine up here can do, then you cannot deny that DMT is, is endogenous and that it uh, has a transformative potential. So something like, I won't quite say a marriage, but a uh, commingling or a balanced relationship between this rational side and the spiritual side, which is, as you know, an enormously polarized problem in our society right now, that something of a kind of marriage is available already inside uh, the substances, not just in your experience of them, but in your understanding of them, how you work, how they work, how culture works, how, uh, how God works. Thanks.
Well, welcome everyone, and um, thank you, JP, and thank you to Bioneers for having me here. Thank you, Jody and Eric, for your fruitful talks, and thanks to all of you um, for either your experiences in these realms, which you bring to the mix, or if you haven't experienced these, then your open-mindedness and your curiosity for even being in this tent and in this discussion. Um, I think it's the nature of these medicines that all the work that we're all doing um, is at play, and that those of us who choose to speak publicly about it are nourished by everyone's private seeking. So thank you. Um, just uh, in answer to the last comment that Eric made, I'd just like to say that my rational side and my um, spiritual side are not married, but they're having a really long, rich affair. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it just stays that way. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I see my work uh, kind of as a go-between, actually, um, between other cultural perceptions of nature and of magic and uh, the spiritual aspects of nature, other worldviews and this worldview that we're in here where we um, enchanted ourselves with materialism for so long that uh, many of us, most of us, the general worldview forgot about uh, the, the breath of nature that's always there and always in us, actually, that we're part of. And um, so in that role, I go out and do what I like to call field work and come back and um, think about it, write about it. Uh, nothing's coalesced into a book yet, but uh, a lot of notes, and, um, and teach, and um, ask myself and ask the medicines hard questions. Um, I like to look at the plant medicines as part of all the plants. I don't, I mean, I'm an ethnobotanist. That means I look at the relationship between human, humans and plants and, um, and that it's an arc of, of an array of relationships of all the plants and all the little ways in which we perceive them, in which they present themselves to us, in which we honor them and um, engage them. And that helps me keep uh, free of that charge of the drug category. So I, I just recommend that uh, sort of point of view that there's that, that everything we do, everything we eat and wear and look at and smell and, and make things out of and grow in our gardens and, and uh, decorate with and make beauty out of is all part of this really rich plant-human relationship. And um, they, I think, they, the, the plant uh, awareness spirits, um, the medicines themselves, uh, don't think of themselves as separate. They're not in some separate category. It's a community, just like we are. And all that diversity is um, a required aspect of the, the pattern that holds things together. 
And um, I, like many people nowadays, uh, call uh, these, these powerful plant teachers, uh, call them medicines um, in, in uh, Spanish, in Latin America, many of the time-honored practitioners and the old systems um, call them las medicinas, the medicines. And, <clears throat> and I think that's just such a good name for them because although there, there are wonderful pleasures, of course, and you know everybody should have fun sometimes, and there's hedonism, and there is uh, delight, and play, and all of those things as, as part of these, um, the tradition really, when you look back on all the cultures that have used them for so long and that are still quietly, or sometimes now not so quietly, using them um, in indigenous and, and mestizo practices and in various parts of the world, the tradition is really for curing, most of all. There's initiation, there's vision seeking that is part of that initiation into adulthood or into a new stage of life. There are certain formal purposes, but the the uh, everyday, every week, uh, psychedelic sessions that are held in many parts of the world are really for mending, for mending the fabric of our reality that we tear by unconsciousness or by accident, by thoughtlessness, um, for mending our, our beautiful, fragile bodies our homes, our land, and the weather, all of these things, they're really worked on through curing ceremonies and, and prayer, um, speaking. Prayer is really, in those situations, a conversation between the medicines and the people who have the, the humility and the worldview to recognize that they can ask, they can negotiate um, with these big forces. And by coming into very conscious ceremony with them in these medicine circles or, or solo work or very small families taking mushrooms and praying together in the mountains of Mexico, there are many examples. Um, they're, first of all, always saying thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for experience, however hard it is. and. Um, recognizing what it is, describing it to itself almost, recognizing the story that life is telling and how they are part of it, and then just asking, please, it would be great if there was enough rain this year for the crops, or um, uh, praying for good luck. And um, in this culture, I feel like uh, we've, as Eric was just alluding to, um, we see so many problems around us. It looks so dire. It, it as Jody was saying too, it is dire. <laughs> and um, I'm a generally uh, trying to look at the big picture kind of person, trying to look at you know the giant fluctuations, ice ages, and universes collapsing and expanding, and really big cycles, you know, to keep the little cycles in perspective. But still, sometimes hopelessness is just pervasive. And um, so I, I really think one, in my, in my experience with people in these other cultures, in these ceremonies, and in my own solo work, that one of the things that I have learned 
to ask for and really to pray for is just hope, to keep hope alive. And if I can keep hope alive, then I can do my work, then I can teach without just throwing up my hands and saying, oh my gosh, all is lost. I often teach younger people, and, um, and it's a responsibility, you know, to transmit both the charge for activism and for consciousness and for examination, but also that, that there is hope that at least, not necessarily that everything will be okay or that will stay the way it looks now, it's out of balance now, much as we're on the lucky end of that out of balance world in this culture and in California right here. <clears throat> but just that to pray for the best outcome and to believe that it's possible. And so we're not paralyzed by hopelessness. That's part of what medicine does, I think. There are all the questions from the, from the personal, smallest sense of that speck in the universe that we are, which I find to be a great relief every time I remember that. T totally a relief. Like, if you are, in fact, a tiny speck in this universe, then it isn't all really on your shoulders. <laughs> but something is on your shoulders, so what is that? And let's recognize that, and how can we address that? And what does it mean to be a decent person? And what does it mean to be a member of this community? And, and all of that. So it just, uh, the undressing down to that particle of, of self um, is uh, really useful. And then the recreation of that um, puts us back in the world with choice and awareness and consciousness. And of course, we have to be very careful of the, one of the many shadows of the search for consciousness, which is pride pride about how conscious you are and how cool you are because you take psychedelics and all of that. That one's really out there. I don't know if you've encountered it, but some of us have encountered it a lot. So it's good because it, the medicines really, if you listen, help you to be humble, humble in a way which is empowering. So, you know, conundrums, you find them all through it, but, uh, but they're beautiful, creative conundrums that uh, turn it upside down and help you to look at it afresh each time. And I think that um, in thinking about the, uh, about nature and how these are all part of nature and our culture and that period of discovery, um, which, you know, began in a little bit in the 50s and then very much in the 60s, um, and obviously had a huge hand in, in uh, changing this culture that we're in and hopefully radiating out to change our behavior in the world, although some days you'd never know it, right? But um, it seems to me that um, linking this up to the, to the curing phenomenon, that the, they all moved, the medicines moved back into our awareness um, because we needed them. The medicines have will, too, and um, they have a recognition of their role in the world to make things whole and to try to balance. And there's a, a friend once gave me a, a wonderful quote that's attributed to a 17th century healer, European healer. Um, it says, uh, when the poisons get too heavy, cures arise. 
remedies appear. They come to mind, they appear at hand, because they are nearby, and because that's the way it always has been. And I've, that's one of those refrigerator quotes for me. And, um, and I find that really, really assuring, because it's sort of like in the really big system, when there's a hole, something comes in to fill it, to stitch it back together. And, and so I, I feel like, you know, we had, we, the Euro-American, you know, colonial, imperial phenomenon, had um, pushed all of these marvelous allies and tools to the edges, underground, eliminated the people who knew how to use them, didn't notice them half the time, you know. We just, we just forgot that there was such a, such a realm of possibilities in this world. And I mean, you can, I tend to personify, uh, maybe more than the average person, but uh, personify um, these species. And so I can just imagine all of the medicines kind of chatting together, you know, the peyote and the ayahuasca and the, the ibogo over in Africa and, and the mushrooms and all of these things. And, um, and realizing that, well, those people up there with all that stuff, those people up there who are very loud and very proud of themselves really need some medicine. They just don't know it. And so who did they send? They sent someone we could recognize. They sent LSD because LSD was easy to distribute. We didn't have to, it was like ready-made medicine. We didn't have to grow it. We didn't have to know a tradition about it. It fit right into our little pill reality. And um, it seemed like we were just going out to have a really good time. And while we were out there having a really good time and having a few horrible times, we realized there's a whole lot more to this. And then we began to look around. And then the others came moving in on the heels of LSD. And I honor LSD for that, for that work and for that big job of knocking on our doors and saying, wake up, wake up. There's a whole reality here that you don't know anything about. And you're in real trouble if you don't realize that it's here. You need it. And, and people, the, the little dark people on the edge of the world that we had pushed off and thought they knew nothing who were hiding in their little houses in South America and all of these places doing their ceremonies, they knew how dire it was and they knew that we needed this and they were praying for us too. So it's all coming round very, very slowly and we're still only a very small part of this picture but you know, changes have occurred because of this awareness in this culture and recognition of what's possible and empowerment and healing and all of that. So aren't we lucky? I think that's, uh, that's what I'll say right now. Just uh, thank you again for all of your work. So we're going to have a few minutes of back and forth here among the panelists, and then we'll open it up to Q&A from the audience. So if any of you three have any questions or comments you'd like to make, why don't you? So one of the things I started thinking about as you guys were talking was this Al Gore film that is using the Earth as this image to take us into the knowledge of global warming. 
and for some reason it came up to me as you were talking that the, the medicines tend to take you inside the earth to as teachings. And in, in my experience, I can remember a few vividly where I literally felt like I was the droplet of water on the leaf and the leaf and the droplet of water and I could go back and forth between both. But it was molecular, it felt like, where I went. And that it's interesting right now in our time that the place he went to bring us to the earth was looking out where I had felt it was the plant medicines that took me deep down inside, I don't know. I think that's, that's also a, a, a temperamental thing. I mean, in the, in the old pre-modern way of looking at things, even in the West, you know, people had different temperaments and they're ruled by different, different gods, ruled by different planets. I mean, astrology is kind of a remainder of that. Um, I say that partly because I, I tend to have very uh, cosmic experiences. And so uh, I often, in fact, it took me a while to not feel guilty that I wasn't having these sort of like, you know, flowing in the stream kind of thing because I, I would often find myself in the, in, the, in, in the Empyrean. So I think it's also that the whole modality that you're opening is itself this multi-tiered world and, and people focus in on, on different levels and that in, in the West that our tendency and spiritual tendency is towards a kind of ascent um, which has a lot of negative aspects to it and that we then materialize literally in going to the moon and then it's going to the moon that allows us to actually turn around and take that picture. So there's some weird lesson there that's a very mixed story about, having, about getting that transcendence and then realizing, oh, well, you know, where am I going to, I can't keep going, I got to get, get up on there. So, uh, so I, can, I can hear that though, it's good. I'd like to ask JP a question, let's see. Um, I, we've known each other for a long time, but he lives in New York and I live out here. And, uh, he always pretends that he's just the moderator. <laughs> Did what? You always pretend that you're just the moderator. <laughs> so, um, what, why don't you just share with us something that is key to the kind of experience that you have and that, uh, that or where your work has been, say, in your recent explorations? I felt like a complete hypocrite because I was editing the book, um, this whole history of Bionier's uh, shamanic plant panels, and I realized I hadn't tripped in 10 years. Um, so I opened my freezer and looked for if I still had any mushrooms, uh, you know. And, and uh, I wasn't sure if they'd still work, but one thing was definitely resolved. They, the freezing definitely worked. They were still extremely potent, and I, I think I, I megadosed. Um, uh, so that was in the spring, and... Uh, it was a delightful experience. I was hoping to uh, have a transcendental experience and uh, um, something profound. Unfortunately, it just wound up being an enormous amount of fun in a beautiful garden, and I, my attention went out. So I feel that I have to build up my courage and energy again and do um, the in the dark by myself megadose. So um, if you don't see me again, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> Well, um, what is the value then, or what is the, in that going out and looking in that beautiful garden, what do you see, and what does it mean? Um, for me, the most powerful influence of psychedelics, and I especially did them in my younger days, and unfortunately, I made every possible error in terms of set and setting and neurosis and uh, wandering around New York City and uh, getting lost and 
anyway, so I, I did every no-no in the book I committed, so I had a few horrible experiences as well. Um, but the powerful experiences in nature that really had a big effect on me um, rekindled a love of nature that I had as a, as a young man where I uh, spent some time as a child in Switzerland and was taken on alpine experiences and I really uh, fell in love with the mountains, a, a love that I've kept my entire life and I go backpacking whenever I can. And uh, I'd forgotten about it, you know, living in New York and during the crazy revolutionary years, burning buildings down and I forgot about my love of nature. And the psychedelic experience what it does for me predominantly is it makes the entire universe buzz with aliveness and my heart keeps, starts pounding and beating and I feel, you know, the classic experience, of, you know, I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know, you know, being able to see through your hands and, um, and it's a, I guess that my religion is that love of life that seems to manifest in everything. Everything becomes alive, everything, every plant, every mineral and that's to me, um, really what it's taught me and wh what's been so important. That said, I don't feel like I need that so much anymore because I think I feel that a lot of the time. Um, so I'm, my next forays will be to look for something else, but that has been my most profound um, lesson from it, or reminder, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. One thing that I find useful in um, my contemporary <clears throat> seeking experiences um, is uh, just looking for, well, I think of it as the work. I mean, this is the work, this being aware, awakening, um, remembering what you know, remembering to enact what you know, to carry it out in your daily life. And, um, and I ask to um, see the next stretch of the path. I've, I've said this before. Um, not because, well, I, when I was young, one of my follies was trying to see the future, which I managed to do um, a number of different ways, way farther than was useful. And, um, you know, got all tangled up with trying to affect it and all kinds of stuff. And then at some point, I, as I matured, I thought, I'm just going to back up to right here, right now, and just look at that little stretch, you know, a hundred feet down the path in the forest before the trail turns. Just what do I need to know about that little stretch and what's my work right there and how can I walk in balance and do my part? And it's just so useful to ask that question. Just may I just see the next stretch of the path? And um, I don't know, I think it's an easy technique. There are a lot of techniques to use with these tools because they, these are really tools. They don't, by themselves, without your work, they don't make you a good person and they don't make you, um, well, you just, they're tools. They're, they're there to be um, in relationship with us. And, and so that uh, is one of the techniques that I find really useful as a working tip. Except when I use that technique, it's like it's a, I'll go in and maybe I feel like I need a healing so I'll say, could I have this healed? And another time, I'll, oh, could I see ahead? I usually get the opposite of what I'm asking for. That the, <laughs> the road I'm showed ahead is the thing that is the healing that I need to go through. And the healing becomes the path that I can't see, but that healing brings it about. So I, and I'm always very wary of the question, of, um, in asking the question of getting very unattached to the answer because it, it 
sometimes needs to speak for a long time before it, the clarity of what it is becomes um, obvious or known. Yeah, I, I guess I'd have a, a question, like, particularly for Kat on, on that one, which is, you know, a lot of people often very early in their experience sort of establish kind of a, oh, I ask for a question and I get an answer. And, you know, it's pretty clear to me a lot of time that they're not really necessarily hearing things. And some people that I know who have worked, you know, way more than I probably ever will with, with some of these things end up having a slightly more, you know, uh, you know, they'll say, uh, you know, the medicine can be a trickster. You know, you can, you can think you're getting one message or, and that something else is going on. And so I'm, I'm curious in your own experience how you worked yourself up to that place where you have a sense of confidence and real communication, or was it something that came very early to you in terms of really sensing a source of information or a source of wisdom and, you know, not just trusting it, but trusting that the particular messages that you think you're receiving are, you know, good, good stuff. What comes to mind right away is um, also from traditions, but also I've been fortunate to have it in my experience, which is that we have allies. And if we know that and trust them, um, then, you know, sometimes they're ancestors, sometimes it's your great-grandmother, sometimes it's ones you didn't know, or it's uh, not having to do with family necessarily, but with um, whatever the mysterious realm of place and spirit and, and uh, tradition and all of that is. I, I think that those, that I, I had those very young for a number of reasons and um, that they're uh, kind of like your best friends. Like, you know, when you say, can I have a reality check with your best friends? You know, am I seeing this right? And so they're there too if you are aware of that as a way of sort of validating what you're seeing. And then in the traditions that I've um, been fortunate to study with, they very much believe in that and carry that through and do that for each other really too. And that's where also having uh, a really good um, shamanic character, male or female, uh, with you is um, they're pretty good at, at uh, sweeping away the troublesome and the irrelevant and keeping it on kind of a clear melody, you know, that's got meaning. So, JP, um, I've been coming to Bioneers for a long time, and I, what, what was it for you that always held space for the shamanic work? You know, what, um, it, it seems to have been part of every year almost, and in some way giving reverence to it. And I wondered what brought you there? What wisdom did you have or honoring to, or in some way you were giving this, the shamanic work its space? In all honesty, it wasn't me uh, alone, certainly, and predominantly, you know, some of the other uh, founders of Bioneers, uh, not to name any names, or, you know, uh, certainly uh, fellow travelers, sympathetic, whatever, to, to, to this work. So I think, um, you know, many of us who were involved in this came of age at a certain time and all were part of the counterculture and so we were, you know, immersed in this. So I, I think it's a collective um, realization and, uh, and, and so it's, it's not me. 
It's not me. It's the group mind. It was the collective intelligence. Um, so maybe we should open it up to. So I think um, we have about 15, 20 minutes left. So um, again, remember that um, we'll tr try to maybe bring a mic down and, um, and then try to keep it short so we can get to as many as possible, OK? Hello. Thank you all for uh, your contributions. I'll be as quick as I can. My question is, de is directed at the four of you, but it's a little bit more specific towards your area of expertise, Eric. Um, but my own personal experience and the research I've done I've kind of delineated three commonalities that seem to happen with DMT experiences. One is a God consciousness, one is a collective unconscious, uh, kind of a conduit into the human consciousness, and the other is this repetitive thing that McKenna and Doblin talk about, about seeing languages, ancient structures, pyramidals, and so on and so forth. I'm curious if your research or if any of your experiences has tied any of these in to any type of, is, is this a common experience across all cultures? You had said that Westerns tend to ascend in their God consciousness, but is this something that's happening with all the cultures that are having this experience? And the subtext to that would be, are we, are we being given a message? Are we being broadcasted something that we're picking up on that particular frequency? And is this kind of an evolution towards, you know, something new? Well, I think the, one of the most pertinent parts of what you asked was really how cross-cultural it is, and I would—I don't know, and so I have a feeling that so, that someone here might have a better answer for the, particularly this question, because the most concrete—I mean, you know, one mind, unconscious—those are very vague terms that are hard to concretize. But the language stuff seems pretty persistent and pretty, you know, of pretty collective in terms of people's experience, and it's fairly describable, like we kind of know what we mean when we say there's these sort of un unusual languages or symbol systems. So I don't know. I mean, is that, how widespread is that in your sense of other traditions, uh, whether with this particular compound or, or with other ones? Because, you know, I could say things, but I don't really know. Well, what I would say, and, and most, uh, the, the most condensed part of my ayahuasca experience was back in the um, mid-1970s in the Peruvian Amazon. Um, with the same people for uh, several months. And uh, at that time, the world, the, you know, nobody out there had television or anything like that, so there was much less information about the modern world, uh, so-called modern world that we're in. And I remember people coming out of sessions describing each other, to each other in the morning, describing their visions to each other. These are traditional in Indians. Um, I remember one man saying, I saw a place where all the birds were very, very big and they were made out of machetes, meaning metal, and, um, and there were paths uh, that moved. You stood on them and they carried you along. And, you know, I, it's, it seemed obvious that he was talking about an international airport. And also people would go in search of uh, lost people or distant children who had moved far away and to see where they were. And they could see their world, wherever they were, and, and find out if they were okay or not. They, in other words, they could see all kinds of things, including ancient temples and flying saucers. And, you know, all of those realms are intersecting and I think are available. And yes, we have cultural tendencies to look in certain places or to have certain parts of the weave appear to us. But, um, but I think they're all in there. Also, different medicines bring out different textures. 
So I don't know if that's an answer. <laughs> Hi, thank you for taking my question. I've been a high school teacher for 14 years, and I'm seeing the, um, the counterculture is grandparents now. Their children have grown up and had kids, and I've been teaching high school kids who are embarking on psychedelic journeys, and I don't know if it's the drug war or if it's a hypocrisy or what it is, but um, I don't see any uh, forward movement in the communication between generations or in guiding young people through this experience now um, and in previous times. So uh, this may be a difficult question to address in the social context that we live in, but I'm just curious if you have any comments or suggestions uh, regarding this. Well, it's one of the reasons why cognitive liberty is so important to me and why ending the drug war is so important because of what we've talked about, about set and setting and creating places that are safe and having the right information and that if they're left, you know, um, shoved away and made wrong, then we're not allowed to have uh, a right relationship with, with any of them. Um, Marsha Rosenbaum, I believe I saw, was in the audience. Marsha, are you still here? Um, she's with Drug Policy Alliance and has worked uh, many years in creating literature to bridge that gap of, you know, instead of just say no, it's just say no, K-N-O-W, so that um, the, the conversation could stay open and information could be passed so that the relationship to not only shamanic plant substances, but you know, all mind-altering um, explorations that are what tend to come with coming of age can be done in a more conscious and relational way. Um, Kat, this uh, is more of a response to something that you said at the table that I want to share with you and also anybody out in the audience that this would strike a chord with. My psychedelic experience, particularly with mushrooms, was being in the embrace of Mother Gaia. It was incredibly comfortable, incredibly surrendering, incredibly humbling that everything is okay. And I want to offer that to you because I heard your fears, your concerns about global warming, your searching for answers. Last year at Vineyards, David Orr gave a presentation that we might have reached the point of no return as far as global warming goes, as far as the cycle and the wheel and the momentum that we have. I walked out of that, that conference, because for 10 years I've been working on global warming issues, and I walked out of that and just sat down just stunned that we might very well have gotten to that point. And then I surrendered. I wasn't on psychedelics or anything, but I remembered the lessons of the mushrooms, and I surrendered to the wisdom of Gaia. And I hypothesized, and what came to me in that moment was the hypothetical concept that everything is just fine that we as human beings might have been brought on this planet by Gaia to put carbon back up into the atmosphere. That at the time, there was a time on this planet when there were no ice caps, when the mean temperature was soaring much higher than it is today, and that was the time of the greatest organic growth on the planet, the largest plants, the largest animals, and everything was in balance and everything was fine. That, so I think if we can get away from our homocentric thinking this global warming issue, I believe, is a much more homocentric situation than a planet situation. Gaia is doing fine, and I think that's what the medicine is saying. And that, you know, if 95% um, of land-based vertebrates 
are, this is maybe one statement, one thing. 95% of land-based vertebrates are our species and the species that we control. The other 5% is the rest of the biodiversity. So I think it's homocentric right now. Well, I, I, I think it's true that we do, we are held in the arms of Gaia and it is a wonderful feeling to remember that. Um, there is a lot of suffering going on though and there's going to be a lot more and um, that doesn't mean hopelessness exactly, but I think we have to really witness it. And that means sometimes we feel it. And it's not just human suffering. I work also in ecological restoration and uh, riparian restoration up north here. And um, one of my jobs. And um, you know, there are species that are disappearing in the time that we're trying to spend the money that the grants gave us to try to save them. Uh, it's, it's a time when things are moving very quickly and the loss of diversity, although it's always been happening and it always will happen, is um, it's just finding that balance between being alarmed and activated enough to do what you can and trusting that in the big picture, uh, that it will be all right, it is all right in some way. It's, it's a tricky dance. <laughs> I think that's one of the things I said, is that for me it was being held in the arms of the mother. But at the same time, it allows us to be, to be engaged and to let something flow through us. So maybe, you know, for what I do in the world, that's my piece of whatever is happening with Gaia, and that's flowing, and maybe how you're affected is your way. But it's 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 brings us to some form of engagement with life. And, and that's each of ours dance and movement out of that experience. Hello. As a student of herbal medicine, I'm wondering if any of you use plants on a more mundane level uh, for body healing. And also, do you ever have any experiences of opening your consciousness on that mundane level in those, using those plants? Anyone that knows me knows that to come to my house is a psychedelic experience. I have a garden of just abundance of plants and flowers and herbs and they um, are part of my everyday of what I smell like, of what I eat, of how I heal. Um, so yeah, they're an integrated part of my day as I know they are with Kat. Um, yes, and, and that's what I was saying earlier about remembering that relationship with all the, the little teachers, you know, and uh, collecting wild herbs modestly here in the hills of Northern California and making medicine from them is one of my great pleasures and using those medicines, um, tinctures or teas and all of that from plants that have been used by people for a very long time is a, it has a spiritual component to it too. It definitely does. Or just sitting with them and in uh, I'm mugwort. I'm just a total sister of. And uh, just sitting where you find mugwort growing near a creek or even on the side of a trail or whatever is a sp an experience in itself. So yeah, the subtle ones. Subtle teachers are great because you have to pay even closer attention. They're not going to hit you over the head. If you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. So they're good ones. 
Hi. Um, I just had a quick question, probably mostly for Kat, but for others as well. I'm wondering, um, in the context of medicine and using um, the medicines for curing, um, what, how does a bad trip, what you would term a bad trip, figure into that? Is it merely something that you need to brush aside and be guided through, or is there something about it that leads to some kind of curing? Bad trip is our construct. And um, from traditions, again, I just keep looking back to that because people have been using these plants for, you know, 100,000 years, probably, 20 that we even have records of, uh, 20,000. And um, uh, that power comes from being challenged and initiation into greater awareness and into adulthood comes from diving into the darkness and finding your way through it and emerging again from it. It is in classically described as an underground or underwater uh, experience. It's a descent into um, whatever form of hell uh, you can come up with and through it and out the other side. And in that process is the healing and the strengthening and the self-awareness. And the allies appear then, too. So it has those potential values, a so-called bad trip does. Also, it's another place where shamans really come in, is like not doing it, you know, in, um, in a chaotic situation, but doing it where there's someone who actually can recognize when you're in trouble and help, uh, help you through it, not help you miss it, just help you experience it and then emerge from it better. There are, there's a lot to be said for those times and, and for having at least one of those in your life. Traditionally, people would try to have one experience like that in their life, at least one. I would just add, um, my own perspective is that it's very important to prepare adequately and not to take it lightly. And these substances don't substitute for your own work on yourself. And there are times in life you shouldn't take them, places you shouldn't take them. And it's very important to be self-reflective and, um, you know, and that'll cut down on the bad trips. And I'm an expert on bad trips, so. Um, I think we've, we're done, unfortunately. I think it's six o'clock. So thank you so much for coming. It's been great.